Hello, and welcome to the Falls Creek Youth Camp Podcast. This week, we have 4,271 campers and adults from 83 churches. In this service, our camp pastor, David Sons, taught on the unrighteous and the self-righteous and how God can save them both from Luke. And during this message, there were 14 spiritual decisions, including 13 professions of faith. All right, what's up? What's up, Oklahoma? Everybody good? Man, it's so good to be back. Uh, my name is David Sons. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor at Lake Murray Baptist Church in Lexington, South Carolina. Uh, so I'm from South Carolina, the better of the two Carolinas. You know it's the better of the two Carolinas because they made a show on Netflix called The Outer Banks about North Carolina, and they film it in South Carolina. So that's how you know we're the better of the two Carolinas. Uh, this is my second time at Falls Creek, and man, this is a special place full of special people, and I'm so excited to have the opportunity to open God's Word together with you this week. You know, the theme for this week is choose. And we're going to be talking during all of our sessions this week about some of the most important choices that you're ever going to make. And I don't know whether you know this or not, but tonight, every single person who walked into this room came in carrying with them a terminal disease. Now, for some of you, you may be like, hey, bro, I got a COVID test before I came on the bus. Like, I don't, I'm good, man. No, don't, don't tell that to my youth pastor, right? But what I'm talking about is that every single one of you, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, Whether whether you grew up in church or you didn't grow up in church, whether you're from Oklahoma or you're from somewhere else, every single one of us is sick with something called sin. And sin is not something that is outside of you that somehow finds its way in. It's something that's inside of us that works its way out. The Bible says that you and I are born into our sinfulness. Now, I think it's really important that we define some terms. What do I mean when I talk about sin? Sin is any action or attitude that is against God's person and command. Now, you might say, well, who is God? We believe that God is the creator of all things, that he is holy and righteous and just, and the one who now breathes life into his creation. And the Bible says that God is without sin, that he is holy, and that he made us in his image for his glory. The Bible says that man sinned back in Genesis chapter 3 with our first parents, Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve's sin has consequences today in this room, that you and I were born into that same sin. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned and fall short of God's holy standard. And that God, because He is holy and because He is just, must punish those who would rebel against His command and His ways and His rule. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the Bible says that the wages of sin, the reward for sin, the consequence for sin is death. And this is the reality that you and I are born into. It's something that you and me 
And every single person who has ever lived will have to face. And you see, all of us have a choice on how we'll deal with the issue of sin in our lives. Some people choose to ignore it. They pretend like it's not a problem. They pretend like there is no such thing and they just live for their own pleasure. Other people decide that they will be the ones who will overcome their sin, that they'll do enough good things for God that it'll outweigh all of their sinfulness. What we found and what we see in God's Word is that both of those options, whether we try to run from God in our unrighteousness and ignore our sinfulness, or we try to fix our sinfulness through our self-righteousness, both our unrighteousness and our self-righteousness lead to the same result. And so we have to ask the question, what, what do we do about this? If I'm a sinner and I stand rightly under the Creator God's judgment, what do I do about the problem of my sin? And this is where the good news of the Gospel comes to us, because God has not left us ignorant about what to do with our sinfulness. In fact, God's Word talks a great deal about sin. Not just what sin is and what it isn't, but about how God has stepped in to solve and to fix the deepest problem that every single person has. And one of the best chapters in the Bible talking about how God deals with our sin occurs in the Gospel of Luke. So if you have your Bible tonight, I hope that you have your Bible or, or can get access to a Bible over the next couple of nights. We're, we're going we're gonna to look at one passage together over these next five nights together. So once you get there, you can just put a, mark, a bookmark in your Bible. You, some of you probably have a little uh, tab or a string you can just put right there. We're going to go to Luke chapter 15. Luke is in the New Testament. It is one of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke. So if you get to the New Testament, it's the third book of the New Testament. Luke chapter 15. And we're going to spend our entire week studying this great chapter of the Bible. And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is telling a series of parables. We'll talk about what a parable is in just a minute. He's telling a series of parables to two groups of people. And when he tells these parables to these specific groups of people, he is giving them insight. He's revealing to them what God is doing about the problem of sin. And as we study this chapter together, I hope that we'll see one kind of primary overarching truth, one simple reality, yet a profound truth that comes to the surface as we study Luke chapter 15, and it's this, that only Jesus has the power to save us from both our unrighteousness and our self-righteousness. That only Jesus has the power to save us from our unrighteousness and our self-righteousness. Now some of you may say, well, what does that mean? We're going to talk about it. Over the next five nights, we're going to come back to this central truth that Jesus has the power to save us from our unrighteousness and our self-righteousness. But let's look together in God's Word, Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. 
all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, meaning Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you tonight for your word, that it is good and right and true, and that the very words of life are contained within these pages. So God, I pray that tonight as we study your word, as we study Luke chapter 15 this entire week, God, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive that which you have for us by your spirit through your word. I pray that the name of Jesus would be exalted in our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're just going to look at the first three verses tonight. I'm not going to get into the parables themselves, but I'll give you a little bit of a, of a maybe a, a, a foreshadowing, a look forward to where we're going to go. Luke chapter 15 consists of three parables. Now, parables are stories that depict a greater reality. They're stories that are used to tell a greater truth. So uh, think about like a Pixar movie, right? Like it's this great story, but usually when you kind of sit down and diagnose it, there's like a truth or reality that they're trying to get across to the audience. Jesus uses parables quite a bit in his teaching. And he uses these stories to convey or communicate a greater truth. And all three of the parables that we'll look at this week in Luke chapter 15 have the same basic premise. Something is lost, something is found, and there is much rejoicing. That's the premise of all three of these parables. Something is lost, something is found, and there is great rejoicing. Now, to help us kind of frame why Jesus tells these three parables— and what he wants his listeners to understand, it's important for us to understand two things. Number one, we have to understand the time. You see, Luke chapter 15 occurs later in Luke's gospel, meaning that it occurs near the end of Jesus's ministry. Jesus right now, as he's telling this parable, is on his way to Jerusalem, where he knows he will be crucified. And so Jesus has begun really to, to try to communicate the urgency of the moment and the urgency of his message and his ministry to the disciples. He knows his time is short, and he begins to speak more clearly to them about what it means to truly be one of his disciples, one of his followers. Secondly, we have to not only understand the time, we have to understand the audience. Who is Jesus telling these parables to? And thankfully, Luke, the writer of the gospel, makes this abundantly clear. He lets us know who Jesus' audience is. Now, it's important for us to understand this. Who is the original audience and who is the recent audience? You and I can learn through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the truth of what Jesus teaches to the crowd. But who is his original audience? Sometimes we look at the first kind of two introductory verses and we see them as just kind of throwaway verses, right? Luke's just kind of setting the scene for us, if you will. But this is God's inspired word. There's no such thing as a throwaway verse in God's inspired word. 
And the first two verses of Luke chapter 15 set the stage for the parables that are to come. So I just want us to look at these really two verses tonight. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now let's ask three questions of the text, okay? Here's three questions we're going to ask and we're going to answer in our time together. Here's the first question. Who are the tax collectors and sinners? Who are the tax collectors and sinners? Secondly, who are the Pharisees and the scribes? Luke says that there's two groups of people that have gathered around that Jesus tells this parable to. The tax collectors and the sinners, who are they? And the Pharisees and the scribes, who are they? And then the third question is this, how does Jesus respond to both groups? How does Jesus respond to both groups? Let's start here. Who are the tax collectors and sinners? This is the first group that Luke mentions. He mentions tax collectors. Um, so I'm from uh, South Carolina. I'm a fan of the University of South Carolina Gamecocks. Any, uh, any South Carolina fans in the house? All right, cool. Uh, so uh, we've got our biggest rival in South Carolina football is Clemson. Uh, and we, uh, like, we, we just, like, South Carolina fans, Clemson fans don't get along. You guys understand this. We got any OU fans in the house? Anybody OU? Yeah, all right. Okay, good. All right, so uh, your rival is Oklahoma State. Is that right? Oh, anybody oh, Oklahoma State? Okay, all right, cool. So, I, I, listen, I, we don't have time to really hash this out right now. You can do it later out in the quad. Uh, that type of rivalry, right? Like, if you're an Oklahoma fan, you see Oklahoma State fans, and you're just like, uh, you know? And if you're an Oklahoma State fan, you see Oklahoma fans, and you're just like, uh. And listen, nothing is worse to a fan base than a fan who changes sides, right? Like, like a guy that you knew that used to be on your side, but then, like, there was a couple of rough seasons, and he's like, you know what? I'm out. I'm going to root for this other team. Nobody likes that guy, right? When Jesus talks about the tax collectors, the tax collectors were those guys, they were the guys who had changed teams. You see, in the first century in Palestine, they were a Roman province, meaning that they were governed by the Roman Empire, meaning that they had to pay taxes to Rome. And the Roman Empire employed local men, local Jewish men to be tax collectors. And they put no restrictions on how much these men could collect. And so many of these tax collectors were working for a foreign invader and getting rich off of their own people by charging them inordinate amounts of taxes. And so the tax collectors were some of the most loathed and hated people. Like they were seen as traitors. And they get lumped in with the next group. The next group that Luke says is not only were the tax collectors gathered to hear Jesus, but they were also sinners. Now, sinners is kind of a broader category. Most likely, it refers to a group of people that did not follow the Old Testament law. Oftentimes, it could also refer to just somebody who was not Jewish, who was a Gentile. They saw them as sinners. And both the tax collectors and the sinners were seen largely by the crowd as social outcasts. They were disreputable characters. These were the people that you didn't want to associate with. These were the people who, when they showed up, it made everything kind of awkward and uncomfortable. 
But notice what Luke says. Luke says that the tax collectors and the sinners were approaching Jesus. They were seeking Jesus out to what? To listen to him. Something that Jesus was teaching was attractive to the social outcasts, to the misfits, to the sinners, to the scorned. These tax collectors and sinners heard something in the teachings of Jesus that intrigued them. Now, this shouldn't surprise us, because whether we know it or not, every person is kind of searching for the same thing. All of these tax collectors, all of these sinners, they were all after the same thing, but in different ways. We all want to be known. We all want to be loved. We all want to be accepted and acknowledged. And we're all looking for that kind of acceptance and acknowledgement and love in all kinds of different places. But what Jesus was teaching the crowd was that that kind of love and acknowledgement and acceptance that we are desperate for, that it couldn't be found in fame and it couldn't be found in money and it couldn't be found in achievement or power or sex or drugs or pleasure or adventure. That what we were looking for, our deepest longing, it could only be met in God. And the same is true today. Some of you have come into this place and you want to know desperately that you are known and loved and accepted and acknowledged and you've sought out those things in all kinds of different places. And we go looking for what God can only provide to us in all the wrong things and all the wrong people. And so is it any wonder then that when the Son of God walked the earth, the people who were most attracted to his message were those who had been looking for him all along. They'd just been looking in the wrong things and in the wrong places. And the question it raises, I think, for us today is can the same be said of the message that, that we proclaim? Can the same be said of the message that our churches preach? is the message that we proclaim drawing in those who are far from God. Because if it isn't, then are we certain that we're preaching the same gospel that Jesus preached? Because as Jesus preaches and teaches, the sinners and the tax collectors and the outcasts and the misfits, and they gather around to listen. But this isn't the only group that Luke mentions that's there. The second group that Luke mentions are the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, who are the Pharisees and the scribes? Um, so I have three boys, uh, eight, six, and three, and they are all very competitive, and we love to play games. And one of the things that we love to do in games is to win games. And to win the game, you have to play by the rules. And so my kids take the rules very, very seriously. But sometimes in their effort to win the game, they just start making up their own rules, right? And you got to be serious about following the rules that they just kind of made up on top of the rules of the game. That's kind of who the Pharisees are. The Pharisees were the rule followers. And not only were they the rule followers, they were the rule makers in first century Palestine. They were the largest most influential, most religious group in the region. These men were experts in the Old Testament law and tradition. 
They not only followed all of the laws of the Old Testament, they actually were so righteous that they made up their own laws and said everybody else now has to follow these laws as well. And they believed that God loved them because they followed all the rules. The Pharisees had gathered to hear Jesus. There was another group, the scribes, and the scribes were like the Pharisees. In fact, many of the scribes were Pharisees. The scribes helped to interpret the law and apply it. The scribes were the guys who came alongside to make sure that you were following the rules that the Pharisees had laid down. And so here you have these two groups, the Pharisees and the scribes, experts in the Old Testament law thinking that God loves them because they know God and they follow all the rules. And so if you were thinking, if there were any group in the first century who should have recognized Jesus as God in the flesh, it would be this group. They're the most familiar with God's law and with his teachings. But over and over and over again throughout the Gospels, we see the Pharisees and the scribes are not Jesus' greatest supporters, but they're his greatest opponents. And that they hated how Jesus did things. And the thing that they hated most about Jesus was that he associated with sinners, with people who didn't follow the rules. And why did they hate this so much? They hated this so much because their entire worldview, their entire belief system, everything that they had given their lives to was propped up on following the rules and being a good person. And here comes Jesus, this great prophet and teacher who has insight into the law of God that they have never had. And yet he snubs their tradition oftentimes in order to associate with people that they consider to be less than and dirty and scummy. And the thing that makes them most angry is that it's not just that Jesus tolerates sinners. It's not just that he's just like, okay, I guess just don't get too close. He actually befriends these people. He goes to their houses for dinner. And a good Pharisee would never do that. He would never share a meal with somebody who was a sinner. What would his other Pharisee friends think if he was found in the home of one of these sinners? And so to protect their reputation, to protect their identity, the Pharisees stayed far away from these sinners. But not Jesus. Jesus comes along and he cares much more about relationships and repentance than he does about reputation and ritual. And it makes the Pharisees furious. It makes them furious. And although some 2,000 years later, the Pharisees as a group have, have dissipated, they've gone away, the spirit of Pharisees is still very present in the world. What do we see in the Pharisees? You, you, know, you know who a Pharisee is? A Pharisee is someone who is an expert in other people's sin, but is ignorant of their own. That's what the Pharisees are doing. 
Jesus is associating with these sinners. How could he? Doesn't he know who they are and what they've done? They're so blinded by their pointing out other people's unrighteousness that they can't see their own sin of self-righteousness. You see, the Pharisees were always more concerned with looking clean than actually being clean. If people thought that they were righteous, it didn't always matter if they were. And sometimes it's harder, I think, to identify the sin of self-righteousness. You see, unrighteousness, man, that just goes before us. All of us know people who are like big-time sinners, right? Like people who are just snubbing their nose at God and His rules and His reign and are running as fast as they can in the other direction. That goes before. That's easy to spot. But self-righteousness, man, that's, that's a little bit more subtle. And in fact, the thing we don't recognize sometimes about self-righteousness is it's equally as dangerous as unrighteousness. It's a way of running from God, but just in a different manner. You see, with self-righteousness, everything looks pretty good on the surface, but underneath... In the heart, things are just as messy in there as they are in the hearts of the unrighteous. And to cover up that mess, the Pharisees will often ignore their own sin to point out the sin of others. And it's these two groups, tax collectors, sinners, the outcasts, the thieves, the traitors, the immoral, and the Pharisees and the scribes, the moral, the arrogant, the judgmental, and the prideful. It's these two groups of people who have gathered around Jesus, each one of them probably uncomfortable that the other one is there. And how does Jesus respond? He responds to both groups in the same way. Verse 3, so he told them this parable. And really he tells them three parables, but they all have the same theme, lost, found, rejoicing. You see, Jesus sees and loves both the unrighteous and the self-righteous. And though these two groups may see themselves as complete opposites with nothing in common, Jesus recognizes that the outcome of both unrighteousness and self-righteousness is the same. That it's separation from God. That it's looking for all the things that only God can provide in all the wrong places, either looking for it in immorality and pleasure-seeking or looking for it in achievement and keeping all the rules. Jesus loves both of these groups of people. He loves those who have rejected God's love and he loves those who are trying to earn it. And he wants them to understand that only God can provide what they're looking for. Only God can give them the love and the acceptance and the recognition 
and the salvation that they're seeking. And so I don't know how you came in here tonight. I don't know how you showed up here this week. And maybe you fall pretty neatly into one of these two categories. Maybe you identify with the tax collectors and the sinners. Maybe you didn't grow up in church. Maybe you don't even know why you're here this week. Maybe literally they tricked you into coming to church camp. Like they were like, hey, you want to come to this camp? It's awesome. And you get here and it's like, it's church, bro. Maybe you're not here for spiritual reasons. Maybe you're here because there's, there's like a cute girl or a cute boy in the church group that you're just like, she's going, I'm in. Maybe you feel like you're too messed up for God. Maybe you feel like you're too messed up for anybody. Maybe you feel the weight of your own sin and your own failures. You don't need anybody to remind you that you're a sinner and that you failed. Maybe you've been told your whole life that you won't measure up If that's you tonight, Jesus has a word for you. Maybe you fall into the second category. Maybe you did grow up in church. And maybe you've memorized all the Bible verses. Maybe you are the sword drill champion in your youth group. Maybe you went to Awanas and got all the badges. You've heard all the stories. You know all the right parts to lift your hands in worship. Maybe you're trying really hard to be good or at least appear good on the outside so your youth pastor or your parents or your friends think that you're good enough. But on the inside, you're angry because you realize that no matter how good you try to be, it never feels good enough. You followed all the rules and maybe God still feels distant. Tonight, if that's you, Jesus has a word for you. Because regardless of what category you fall into, maybe for some of you it's a little bit of both, we'll talk about that in the next couple nights, only Jesus can give you what you're really seeking. Only Jesus can provide for you what you're really seeking because only Jesus has the power to save us from our unrighteousness and from our self-righteousness. A few years ago, I woke up in the morning and I, I just felt really bad just like kind of off like I didn't feel well my stomach just kind of hurt and I just but I just kind of like plowed through the day I'm, I'm not really a, a like I'm kind of independent I'm kind of bullheaded I'm kind of stubborn and I don't really ever like to get sick but by six o'clock that night I was laying on the bathroom floor curled up moaning and my wife just kind of came in and very gently was like hey you think you want to go to the doctor now and I'm just like yeah let's go so I went to the doctor and I get in and they run all the scans and the doctor comes in and he says, listen, you have appendicitis. Your appendix is ruptured. And I was like, what does that mean? He's like, well, you have an appendix. And I said, what does your appendix do? And he said, it doesn't do anything. But if it stops not doing anything, it'll kill you. And I was like, that's got to be the worst organ ever. Like, that's just like, I don't know what God was doing with that one. But he said, we've got to get your appendix 
out of you or you're going to die. And so in that moment, I really had one of three choices. The first choice, I could have just said to the doctor, you know what, doc, thanks for your expert advice, but I'm gonna get out of here. Like, I think I know my body better than you do, so I'm just gonna get out of here. I'm gonna trudge through this the next couple of days. Uh, this little appendix, man, this thing ain't gonna beat me. I'm stronger, I got things to do. And I could walk out of the doctor's office. Now, what would have happened in about 24 hours time? I would have been what? Dead, exactly. That's the first option. I could have just ignored it, walked past it. It's not true, thanks, but no thanks. Second thing I could have done is I could have said, hey doc, you know what? You're right, my appendix is about to burst. I really haven't been eating like I'm supposed to. And I haven't been working out really. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna get out of here and I'm gonna go order a salad. And maybe I'm gonna get one of those like video on demand workout subscriptions and start doing some workouts and some yoga. And I'll beat this thing. I'll do it myself now. What's gonna happen to me in 24 hours? I'm gonna be dead. So the first option, ignore it, death. The second option, fix it myself, death. And so what option do I have? Here's the only option that I've got in that moment. The only option I have is to let somebody open me up and take out what's killing me and take it away. Now, now here's the thing, it can't just be anybody. Listen, I'm in Oklahoma. I know there's some old boy in here right now that's like, I got a pocket knife right now, let's do this thing. can't be you. Thank you for your service to me and our Lord, but it can't be you. It's got to be somebody who's got the qualifications to do it. It's got to be somebody that's got MD behind their name. Somebody who has the power and the ability to save my life. And what I've got to do is I've got to put my life and my hopes and my sickness in the hands of the physician who can heal. And the same is true for you tonight. The same is true for you tonight. Whether you came in here trying to ignore your sins, saying it's not that big of a deal, it's not even really a thing, running from God, your unrighteousness lead ultimately to death. Maybe you came in here tonight going, you know what, I'll do better. I'll try harder. I'll memorize more verses. I'll go to church more. Your self-righteousness leads to death. And you say, well, what's the answer? And the answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. And we can't do it. You know how I can't forgive my sin? Because I'm a sinner. And so in order to have my sin forgiven, in order to have it carried away, in order to have life in the place of death, I've got to put my trust in the one who is qualified. And there is only one who is qualified to carry away my sin because he's the one who came and lived the life that I could never live and died the death that I was supposed to die and rose to defeat enemies that I could never defeat so that tonight, if you put your faith and your hope and trust in Jesus and say, Jesus, it's not my unrighteousness, it's not my self-righteousness, it's your substitute righteousness that I need. Jesus can give you life.
And so here's how I wanna close our time together tonight. I just wanna ask this. I know, listen, it's night one. Man, everybody kind of rushed in here. There's lots of things happening. You're trying to still get acclimated. But listen, I believe that when God's word is proclaimed, when Jesus is high and lifted up, that the spirit is at work in the place where the word of God and the son of God are exalted. And so here's what I wanna do tonight. I'm just gonna ask you, if you would say tonight, If you'd say tonight that I came in here running from God in my unrighteousness or trusting God or trusting my own self-righteousness, but I know that I've never put my faith and hope in Jesus. And tonight for the very first time, I want to say, Jesus, I need you to be my Lord and my savior. This ain't about recommitment. It's not about rededication. That's not what we're doing. We're saying for the first time tonight, if you would say, I want Jesus to be my Lord and savior. I wanna put my faith and hope and trust in him alone. Maybe you came to camp last year and all this rest of the year, God's been working on you and the Holy Spirit's been knocking on the door of your heart. And tonight, for the first time, you wanna say, I wanna follow Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Here's what I want you to do, okay? I just wanna, I just wanna ask you to do one simple thing. If that's you tonight and you would say, I've never put my faith in Jesus, but tonight, I want to put my faith in Jesus for the very first time. If you would say that's you tonight, would you just stand up right where you are? Just stand up right where you are. I'm just going to ask you to stand wherever you are. That's you tonight. No, wait, 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 wait. Just stand. I just, just, we're gonna, we'll clap and celebrate in just a minute. I don't want anybody to stand because people are clapping. If that's you tonight, and you would say for the first time in my life, I want to trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior just ask you to stand. I'm just going to give you a moment. To those of you who are standing and who will stand, perhaps in a few moments or in a few days, let me just say this. The decision that you're making tonight is the most important decision that you'll ever make in your entire life. This whole week is about choosing. And tonight, you are making one of the most important decisions, the most important decision you'll ever make in your entire life because what you are doing tonight is you are placing your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ who is the Lord who is the only one who can forgive our sin who can give us new life and it's because of his work that he did on the cross the judgment for our sin that should have fallen on me fell on him and so tonight as you stand, what you're saying is you're just simply saying, Jesus, it's not about me, it's about you. I need you to forgive my sin. I wanna follow you as my Lord and Savior. So that's you tonight and you're standing. In just a moment, I'm gonna ask you to meet me right here at the front of the stage after I pray. And I just wanna have an opportunity to pray with you. We're gonna give, there's lots of other folks who are here. They want to pray with you and talk to you about what this decision means. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray. And after I say amen, I want you just to come right where you are, down to the front. I want to meet with you for just a moment. And we're going to give you an opportunity to meet with somebody who wants to pray with you and talk with you and meet with you and your student pastor about what it means to follow Jesus. And so if you're not standing tonight and you see some of these that are standing, now is the time to celebrate. We can celebrate that Jesus Christ is Lord. But he alone is able to save.
And here's what I believe. I don't think he's done. I don't think he's done. I don't think he's done. I think there are many of you even in here tonight, man, whether you know it or not, Charles Spurgeon, the great theologian says, calls him the hound of heaven, that the hound of heaven is after you this week. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness, for your kindness, for your mercy. I thank you for these students who are standing even now, who are saying for the first time they want to trust you as their Lord and Savior. And so, Father, I pray, God, that in this place you would save souls right now. Not because of our goodness or our righteousness, but because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for these students who are standing. I pray that right now, Father, they would pray a simple prayer of repentance, asking you to forgive their sin, committing to follow you as Lord, believing that you are the only way of salvation. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in the hearts and lives of others. I pray that you would use your word, use the Spirit to exalt the Son, the one who is able to save. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. To follow us on Facebook or Instagram, just search for Oklahoma Baptist Youth. And for more information, visit oklahomabaptist.org slash youthcamp. Thanks for listening.